0: The book of um, John, and I just want to read about three verses, verses 34 through 36, and I hope that you have your Bible with you, that you can follow along. If you do not have it, uh, then we, we're going to put those uh, scriptures up on the screen so you can follow there, and at home we will also put them on the screen there. Uh, if you're interested in saying, well, I don't want to figure out what he said about this or whatever, uh, you can tune back into us on Thank hey. Let's read this together over in job. And look what it says over in John 8. And I also want to do this. I want to put to, to rest some of the lies that the devil is trying to spread with his crowd this morning. So listen so what it says in John 8, 34, starting with verse 34 through 38. Jesus answered them, I Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is the slave of sin. Whoever commits sin is the slave of sin. And if a slave does not abide in the... Lord may come to get us. Lord, you may decide that you've had enough of me. And you're going to call me home. That'd be all right. I pray for every person that's here. And I pray, Father, for those that are here that are going through all kinds of problems. And problems. And Lord, I pray that you lift that load off of them. Help them to see, Lord, that you came for this very reason. That if they would just give these things over to you, you would carry them for them. I pray for those, Father, that are here. Thank you. In thy sight, for you're our strength, you're our redemption, you're everything, and we can't do this without you. So I pray, Father, simply you would be with, that you, that you be with us. Amen. Now let me do this before. Uh, uh, the two Washington politicians had locked themselves out of their car, and unfortunately, some important papers they needed for a meeting were inside the car. Let's use the coat hand. Someone might see us and think we're trying to break in. Then we could use my pocket knife to cut away the rubber around the window and stick our fingers through the pull up the lock. No, 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 people would think we're too stupid to you. know how to use the coat handle at the open car. Well, we'd better do something fast, fast, because the top's down and it's starting to rain. I wish that was really. True. This is where the woman is caught in the very act of committing adultery. And the Pharisees had brought this woman to Jesus. And Jesus, when they did, they said this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. And they thought they had Jesus. So they said, well, what, what are you going to do with it? Because the law says they're supposed to stone her. Now, you've been teaching the grace of God, and so the grace of God says that you're going to let her go. So what is it? And they thought they had it. And what was Jesus doing? Down on the ground and he took his finger and he began to write on the ground. Sometimes I think people read that those verses of scripture and they're more interested in what Jesus wrote than what was going on in that, that story. The truth of the matter is what Jesus, you know, what Jesus wrote. Some people said he was writing uh, hotel or, or days in or whatever, right down there the date and everything, and those guys looked down and saw and all of a sudden they realized they had to leave and go home. wrote down, and he took his finger and he began to write on the ground. He wrote on the ground. What he was really saying to them, he was saying you dare to even say to the one who wrote the law? Because I want you to think about something. The Bible says that God took his finger on Mount Sinai and he took his finger and he wrote the Ten Commandments. They say the rock facing where he was at that time is almost like it was at Sinai. He wrote the law. He said, you're questioning me about the law so the Bible says, he said, let the first one among you who's without sin cast the first stone. And when he does this, the Bible says, from the eldest to the youngest, they dropped the stones and then left because they were convicted. All of a sudden they remembered they had something on the stones or they had to do something else. But Jesus is still stupid. he's standing there with this woman. This woman represents you and I. That we stand there with sin covered all over. She was guilty. Finally, Jesus looks up at her. Where thine accusers have no man him. she says no man him. And he, at that point, he says, and neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. You see, that's very profound because what it says, it says this. It says he, he didn't say to her, go get yourself cleaned up, stop all this stuff you're doing, get everything done, and then come and see me. And once you come and see me, then I won't condemn you. That's the way the world thinks. How many times have I heard somebody say, well, I'm going to come to church when? I God in fact, the Bible says over in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I think it's verse 18, it says, When a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. It, it, it's, it almost sounds the opposite. Lord, take away the veil so I can see where to go. And then as a result of that, when that happens, then as a result, Lord, I'll come to you. No, God says, you come to me, and then I'll take away the veil. That's what Jesus was saying. He said, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. See, the product of living the Christian life and the righteous life comes from a connection between the relationship you have with Jesus and no other place. Because the Bible says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. It can only, the byproduct, we don't work to be saved, we work because we are saved. That's the difference in our lives. So Jesus does this with them, and and so in this, now He has, and and so she's caught in the very act Adultery, Uh, Jesus tells the first person without sin to cast the stone, and they've been convicted in their heart. They leave, they go out, and now it's just Jesus and the woman of that day. And yet, you know, the same thing about this is, here stands this woman with Jesus. And do you realize that the day is going to come that you will be standing in the same place she is? Not if you know Jesus, it won't be one out of condemnation, but it'll be one out of reward. Because the Bible says that we all must stand in front of the judgment. That's a Christian. Now, we're not going to be judged for our sins because the Bible says he's already separated us from our sins as far as the East is from the West. And that, that there is now no more condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. But he's going to, as how we live our life, it's important after that, not for salvation, but for reward. And what the Bible says, if you're faithful over a few things, God will make you ruler over many. What does that mean? It means in the new millennium, God's going to determine what we're going to be doing in that time by how we've lived our life down here going to be because you're a great preacher or because anything else. It's going to be how faithful you What God has placed in your path. How you've acted. How you've done your life at that time. That's what it's going to mean at that time. And so as a result of that, the central conflict here. Now the Pharisees are coming to Jesus. And the central conflict that is happening here to the Pharisees is the origin of Jesus Christ. You see, they didn't believe He was the Son of God. They didn't believe He was the Messiah. There are a lot of religions out there that, that they talk about Jesus, but the truth of the matter is they don't believe that that baby in the manger, like the Mormons, do not believe that the baby in the manger was Jesus Christ. That He was God Almighty. Oh, They, they believe He became God like we, they believe that we become God. No, they don't believe that. But Jesus, that baby in the manger had to be God the only one that could take away your sins and my sins and the sins of the, all the world would be that one that He came incarnate. It was God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Is what the Bible teaches. So they didn't believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. They didn't believe that He, that he was the Messiah. And so the Pharisees, it was it's the origin of Jesus Christ. And the Pharisees say they, they were descendants of Abraham. And Jesus said to them, that they were the physical descendants of Abraham. This is what it says in verse 35. And a slave does not bide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. He says a slave doesn't bide in the house forever. And just like Ishmael, Abraham's slave son, was cast out. That's what Jesus was saying to them. Jesus was saying to them, you may be descendants of Abraham physically, but you don't belong to him afraid that's the story of a lot of people in our world today. They do all the things outside. They, they, they look good on the outside, but inside, they're just as dead as they could possibly be because they've never come to Christ. Well, they're religious. They do all the things that religion says to do, but they've never had an experience with Jesus Christ. And it was to that man, Nicodemus, that, who prayed, five times a day and with the church or synagogue three times a day that to that man Jesus said except you be born of the water and the spirit you can't enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was saying to them you may be descendants of Abraham physically but they were not spiritually Abraham's sons because that same crowd was seeking to kill Jesus God's son. Jesus said you may be Abraham's seed but you're not his children. And all throughout the scripture it makes a distinction of Abraham's seed and Abraham's children. They would say they were descendants of Abraham because they had been circumcised. But listen to what the Bible says, Romans 2, 28-29. It says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. God has taken the old stony heart in us, as Ezekiel says, and He's given us a new heart. He's given us a new heart. Seed refers to the physical, and the remember a seed must die before it can bring forth life, as Jesus taught us. Abraham's children refers to them who believe Romans 4.1. He says, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? No. He goes on to say in 4.3, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. For Christians by our birth in Christ Jesus. At this point, the Pharisees now descend into derogatory remarks because listen to what he says over in Verse 41. It says, You do that." Jesus said to them, You do the deeds of your father. Who's he saying? You're doing the very deeds of the devil. But listen to what they said to him. Then they said to him, We're not born of fornication. We have one Father God. Do you hear what they just said to the Almighty Son of God. They just said to him that you're a, a child, a bastard child. You you were born you were born out of fornication. You you were born were born in such a way that that uh, now that you, you know you, you were you were born out of wedlock is what they said to him. Jesus says whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And then he says in verse 36 with what he says therefore if the son makes you free you're free indeed. If the son makes you free you're The word freedom by definition is the power to react, right to act, speak, or think as one without hindrances or restraint. It also means the absence of subjection, listen to this, the objection to foreign domination or despotic governments. A simile for freedom are words that mean the same for freedom is democracy. I don't find that same word freedom as a, as a simile for Marxism. The question for this time in our nation's history is, do we understand what being free or freedom really means? If you ask some of those people that have come here from communist China or North Korea or Russia, or ask those who were in the Holocaust survivors, and I've talked to many of those older people that went through that time and now live in the United States, they will tell you they can't believe that we as a nation don't appreciate what we have in we're on the verge of losing it, guys. We're on the verge of people that want to take that away from us. Of course the media in our schools and colleges teach that America was never a Christian nation. Because if you read Psalms 2, it talks about how that they want to come and take off the cord and the chains that bind us. What do they mean? We don't want any restraint because we want to hear this stuff about God. Why do they believe that God doesn't exist so they then can live their life out up a high school American history book now and read about the Pilgrims and the Mayflower Compact, they will tell you that the main purpose that the Pilgrims came here for is a better life. But let me just quote to you the one section that they leave out of the Mayflower Compact. They conveniently leave out one part. But listen to what it says. November listen, November eleventh, 1620. In the name this is what the Pilgrims wrote. In the name of God, I am in. We whose names are underwritten for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith have undertaken a voyage to plant the first colony. you hear what I'm saying? Do you hear why they came? What did they come? They came for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. You know, what we're experiencing today is the rewriting of our country's history to fit political narrative. And even though it's a lie, control people. You see, Karl Marx, who was an atheist and hated God and made fun of Christians, once said that if you can rewrite a people's history, you can control their future. That's exactly what we're being taught. That's exactly what our kids are being taught in many ways. So I simply say that the intent of our our founding fathers was not to establish a national religion, but make no doubt, they came here so they could be free to worship and honor God the way they wanted to. If you go to Washington, D.C., there's 40-something acres up there that encompass, or maybe more than that, I'm not sure, but I think it's about 40-something acres, that encompass the Washington Monument, that encompasses the White House, that encompasses the, uh, the, the Capitol and other things that are there. If, if that are there, you cannot pass or enter any building... That you do not see a scripture or wording honoring God the Father, and it's all engraved in in stone. It's in stone. You see, you see statues of Moses there. in the Capitol Building. You see the Ten Commandments written everywhere, and they're telling you and I that we're not a Christian nation. Now, the highest point on the Mall which is the Washington Monument in D.C., a building around the Capitol, the White House, the Washington Monument standing 555 feet, and on top of the Washington Monument, there is a metal that is engraved on top, and guess what it says? It says, to God be the glory. That's what it says. Barack Obama went around the world stating that we were not a Christian nation, and we have never Let's read the first four important documents of our early history, Uh, the the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, the Federalist Papers, and the Constitution, and see how many times the name of God, our Creator, is evoked in in those documents. Of the 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence, almost all identified themselves as Christians, and all but one were Protestants. Half were students of divinity in their colleges. Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, who they said were deists, were really members of the Episcopal Church. When they were deciding the type of government that we'd have, where did they? they, they where did they turn to get the type of government? They turned to the Word of God. Why do you mean, Lee? Look at Isaiah thirty-three verse twenty-two. For the Lord is our what judge? What is that? That's a judicial. Supreme Court. The Lord is our lawgiver. What is that? That is the, the, the House of Representatives and the Senate, the legislative body. The Lord is our king. What is that? That's our president. We don't have a king, but we got a president. That's where they got that from. All three branches of the government. So let me just share with you when some of these people say that we're not a Christian nation and we were never formed to be a Christian nation. Let me just share with you some of the writings of some of those early founding fathers. Listen to what Washington said. He referenced Jesus Christ as the divine author of our blessed religion. And in a circular letter to all the governors of America in 1783, the following prayer, listen to what he said. I now make it my earnest prayer that God would have you and the state over which he presides in his holy protection, that he would incline the hearts of the citizens to cultivate a spirit of subordination and obedience to government, to entertain a brotherly affection and love for one another, for their fellow citizens of the United States at large, and particularly for their brethren who are served in the field, and finally that they would most graciously be pleased to dispose us, to do all justice, to love mercy, and to demean ourselves with charity humility and pacific temper of mind, which are the characteristics of the divine author of our blessed religion, and without a humble imitation of those examples and those things, we can never hope to have a happy nation, is what he said. When the Continental Congress authorized the a day of fasting in 1778, Washington told his soldiers, and he said this, he said, That simply humiliation and prayer and at one time with one voice the righteous dispensation of providence may be acknowledged in his goodness and mercy towards us and our arms supplemented and implored the general direction that that day also shall be religiously observed in the army that no work be done thereon that the chaplains prepare discourses suitable to the occasion. In his farewell address he said, In the importance of religion for a Republican government, His 1976 farewell address, written by Alexander Hamilton and revised by Washington himself, said it is unrealistic. Listen to this, it is unrealistic to expect that a whole nation, whatever it might be said, of the minds of peculiar structure, could long be moral without religion. That national morality is necessary for good government, and the politician should cherish religion's support of national morality. Instead, we got somebody like Jerry Manworth that stands on the house floor and says, we don't need God's word in this place. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, Washington said religion and morality are indispensable support. He went on to say, in a sense of religious obligation, deserts the oath which instruments of investigation of the courts of justice led us with caution and does of superstition. So supposition of the morality can be maintained cannot be maintained without religion. Reason and experience both prevent us to expect the national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principles. Listen to what John Adams said the general principle on which the fathers achieved the independence were the general principles of Christianity. I will avow that women believe and now believe that those general principles of Christianity are eternal, immutable, as the existence attributes to God. And, and uh, John Adams, the signer of the Declaration of Independence, Judge Diplomat, one of the two signers. The Christian religion is above all religions, whatever prevailed or existed in ancient modern times. He said this suppose a nation in some distant re- re- region should take the Bible for the only law book and every member should regulate his conduct by the precepts they're exhibited. What a utopia. What a paradise would be that, that place. John Quincy Adams, the sixth president of the United States, uh, they call him the old man eloquent. Here's what he said. My hopes of my future life are all founded upon the gospel of Christ and I cannot quibble away, evade the whole tenor of his conduct by which he sometimes possibly asserted. That other councils permit his disciples in asserting that he was God. The hope of Christians inseparable from his faith. Whoever believes in the divine inspiration of the Holy Scriptures must hope that the religion of the unit, that Jesus shall prevail throughout the earth. Listen to what Samuel Adams said. I rely upon the merits of Jesus Christ for a pardon of all my sins. I concede that we cannot better express ourselves than by humbly supplicating the supreme ruler of the world, that the confusions that are have been among nations may overrule the monic speed of bringing in the holy and happy period when the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ may be everywhere established and people willing to bow accept scepter. Uh, I, I could. I, I'm not going to read the rest. Of I've got. I mean, I, and these are only about uh, seven or eight of them. I could go on and go on. Don't tell me that this country was not founded on Christian principles. It was. And the men and the women of that time believed that. They believe what was the number one textbook that they used during that time? It was the Bible. It was the Bible. And so don't tell me that it's not. That is a lie. That is a lie. And we don't we need to stand up to that. So you can see that yes, this country was founded on Christian principles, not humanistic lies. So on the Fourth of July, as an American, we right now enjoy freedom that the rest of the world longs for. And yet many are not free. There are many people that live in nice homes, have good jobs, have all the advantages of a person can have in his life, yet when they lay down at night they feel unaccomplished, insignificant, and empty on the inside. True salvation is synonymous with freedom. In fact, the Bible tells us in Galatians 5, it tells us for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Not only do you use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. We've been called to be free. And so Paul writes, Don't use that liberty we have in Christ to be used for self-indulgence. Our license is sin. But the Lord knows that freedom in Christ is necessary for the de- development of your soul. You cannot be virtuous if you don't. If God, God so loved us, and why would He put that tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why did He, why did He not just put the tree of life in there? Because of something that we all come to a place that we understand. It. That's it. that if you really truly love somebody, you give them freedom. That's what it means. And God so loved us that we're that that, that being able to be able to live in freedom must come with the choice to be able. to... I've said this before, I want my wife to love me, but I don't want to force her to love me. I want her to love me out of all free will. Guess what? God who loves me more than anybody else, the God who loves you anymore, more, He wants the very same thing for you. He wants you to voluntarily come to Him love. So He gives us that freedom. And so He knows that that freedom in Christ is necessary for the development of your soul. You cannot be virtuous if you don't get to choose. And so one of the most Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And verse 34 says the opposite of that, that sin enslaves us. Yet true freedom is found only in Christ. Well, my friend, I wish I could convince people that how sin deceives. what well, promises freedom, but when it does, it's controlled and corrupts us and destroys us. Those who don't have faith in Christ abound in Bible says over in the book of Romans chapter 6, but God thanked that though you were the slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became the slaves of righteousness. Uh, he says also about spiritual death, he says, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God. Jesus was saying to the Pharisees, speak speaks to us today, that they were not free physically because they were not they were free physically because Rome was overpowering them. And they were not free spiritually. They were bound by the law. Verse 34 is, the, is in the present tense. So it's saying to us today that and I say, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Immediately, it's in the present tense. If you're living in sin, you're the slave of that sin. You are the servant of sin. You know, I'm going to be honest with you. I doubt any of us can go through one day without sinning. You screw up. But you know what? One thing that the major difference in an unbeliever and a believer is this the child of God, when he sins, he comes to the Father every day. Believe in sin. They believe everybody's just good and they just go on. And and this is the, the thought of, of of Romans six sixteen. 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are the one slave to whom you obey, whether sin leading to death or obedience leading to life? you heard me preach on this before. And the word obey there really is the Greek word hypocayo. And what does it mean? It means to put yourself under, to listen to have influence over? What is it in your life that's causing you to live the way you're living? The Son makes us free indeed. We don't have to be the servant of sin. John 1, 4, 4 says this, If you are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Because listen to this, when we give the devil too much credit, greater is he that is you than he that's in the world. Greater is he that's you than he that's in the world. The Bible even tells us there is no temptation which is taken us, but which is common. But God will, God who is faithful will with that temptation. Always provide a way of escape. There's always a way. We don't have to live that way, guys. That's what I'm trying to say. It says in John 5, verse, 5, uh, verse 4, whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. I, you know, we don't have to live in defeat all the time. That's why we read this thing up here every Sunday morning. I'm trying to get you to come to the place that comes from here down to your heart that you understand who you are. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that what? That we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Do you understand that? That when you came to Christ, God in your bank account, you were were bankrupt. God took that whole deposit of Jesus and put it in your bank account, for that now I can literally say I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus because of what he did. I can say that. Too many Christians accept defeat. And a failure is normal Christian life. We just believe we just we just go through life and we just fail, 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 and that's it. That's not right. But the Lord never intended for us to live like that. Let me say it again, the Lord never intended for us to live like that. These Christians don't understand that Christ has done for them. And they're just like I hold on, a whole story that when a baby elephant comes, it's just small, they take a chain and they take the chain around his leg. He he tries to pull on it, and he knows he can't go. And yet, as he gets older, he gets stronger, he can lift trees, he can do all this stuff. All he has to do is move one leg, and that chain would come completely out of the ground. But he stays there. Why? Because in his mind, what he's still bound by that chain. That's the way some Christians live. Christians live like they're defeated. Rather than live victorious in Jesus Christ, that's what I'm saying to you. You don't have to live that way. The more I give myself over to Jesus, the more victory I'm going to experience, the more I'm going to come to the place and understand it. So let me ask you this question Are you free? Just just one moment. Are you free? Is there an emptiness in your life? Is there an emptiness in your life that you try to feel, but still there is? A gaping hole that you know is there? Maybe nobody else knows about it, but you know that you're empty. Or maybe maybe you've gone to church all your life, but is there that empty? I'm, I'm asking whether you're religious or what. I'm asking you is there, a, is there a gaping hole in your life? Is there emptiness there? If you try to fill it with different things, if you try to fill it with alcohol and now that you're so gone with alcohol that that alcohol now is actually calling you? Is it drugs? and the lack of purpose and feeling of insignificance, but now you're sort of hooked to that and you can't avoid it? Do you live each week just waiting for the weekend to go uh, so you can go and hit the bars and party all all weekend long, but then Sunday rolls around and you find yourself getting more and more depressed? Have you tried to fill it with sex? One partner after another and now you feel dirty because you use people as if they were tools for your gratification? Has the internet reached out its tentacles and pulled you into pornography where images of people are no more than instruments for you to use for your self-indulgence? Now you're having trouble telling the difference. Visions that you see, with somebody's daughter, you say I don't have those kind of problems. Good. Are you a slave to jealousy? Are you a slave to jealousy that, that those you love have to you have to know where they are one hundred percent of the time? That you're a possessive person. That you don't trust because someone hurt you, and, and you have never dealt with in the Lord. So you're a that, and now as a result of that, bitterness comes in, starting to creep in? Are you a slave to gossip? You can't wait for the next big juicy tale that could hurt somebody's reputation. You can't wait to get it on Facebook and tell everybody about it. Are you bound and a prisoner of worry that you obsess continually about what could happen even though it doesn't happen? Are you blind that you have eyes, but you don't see, and you don't see what Jesus has done for you? You don't see your own sinfulness because the God of this age has blinded your eyes, lest you see the light of the glorious gospel? And are you so infatuated with your own sins when God remembers them? Why would, you, why would you let those things even have a place in your life if God remembers them no more? Are you obsessed with your failures instead of what God's success was on the cross? Uh, uh, and, and are you concerned with your struggles that you aren't looking anywhere else except upon yourself, even though the Bible says looking unto God? your own sinfulness because the God of this age has blinded your eyes you to the light of the glorious gospel. Are you blind thinking you have plenty of time or, and you're like the rich man who who said he will tear down his barns and he'll build greater barns rather than share it with others? And, and so he gets ready to do it and the Bible says, Thou fool, thy soul shall be required of thee last night. What it actually, what it actually says in the Greek, it actually says this. It says, Thou fool, their ass Do something here if I can, and I'm almost through. But I want you to look, and we all know Jeremiah 29 11, But I want you to see this, and and, and I want to add to that, Brandon, if I can, 12 and 13 to this. But look what like this—this is what God thinks about. You. See, some of you in here think God's just out to get you. Some of you think that every time you move, God's trying to hit you in the butt with a. God says, for I know the thoughts. I know the thoughts that I think for you. What are those thoughts that God thinks for you? It says, the Lord thoughts of peace. And not of evil. Of peace in your life. Not of evil. This is what God wants. He gives you a future. A future. God's got plans for you. If you'll just find it. He's got a course for you to run. If you can get there and get over there. And when He does that, man, you're going to find such significance and peace like you've never found a future, and a hope, and a hope, now, if you, this, this, if what you realize is, then look what the intimacy happens, because you're intimate with the Lord now, you realize this, look what it says in verse 12, then you will call on me, what, and go and pray to me, and what does it say, I will listen to you, I'm going to hear you, because we're so intimate with one another, I'm going to hear and listen to your prayer, and then look what it says in verse 13. It says, "And you will seek me, and find me when you search for me with all your heart and all your soul." Maybe the very reason that we say, "Well, I can't," I pray, but my prayers go up to like the ceiling, and the, you know, maybe they right here. You haven't really saw Him with all your heart and soul. So, let me ask you one more time. would be the one that if we're free with Him, that if, if He has come to the place in our life where we're free, He says this, yes, therefore, if the Son makes you free, you're free indeed. Has Jesus Christ made you free? Notice this, the Son makes you free, not you doing something to be free, but if the Son makes you free, are you free? And at night when you lay down sleep, your mind begins to wander and not rest. Do you worry that you're not sure of your salvation? The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, it says, These things have I written to you who believe on the name of the Son of God in order that you might know you have eternal life. So that that you can't That's not what the Word says. The Word says you can know that you're healed. You can know that you're His. So well, I ask you what you're you Are you free? Well, we, live, we live in a great country. Any other floor?